It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. The views expressed by the commentators do not necessarily reflect the views of the City of Code St. Luke or the Code St. Luke Public Library. All right, with that out of the way, here is Hershey Dwoskin with In the Headlines. Uh, welcome to our weekly discussion of current events and looking at things that appear in the news. And um, today I've decided to do a few different subjects. Sometimes uh, we do it that way. Sometimes I pick one for the whole time. And um, I'm um, uh, going to start with a subject which uh, is uh, certainly of current interest, but um, is one which uh, many people um, can't focus on for a long time. And uh, then we'll quickly move on to something else. So uh, what I wanted to discuss about was the idea that has appeared in the United States to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. And um, the question, of course, to decide is, is this a good idea or a bad idea? Who gains and who loses? Um, what's the minimum wage uh, today in, in uh, the United States and in Canada? Uh, what percentage of the people make the minimum wage or close to it? And how would society be affected in general if the minimum wage went up? So those are sort of the questions that I'd like to discuss for maybe, I don't know, 20 odd minutes, and then we'll go on to something else. So, um, uh, you know, for those of you who are following uh, American politics, and it's hard not to, considering the saturation on television, um, the Biden administration is trying to stick a raise in the minimum wage together in, in together with the bill to provide uh, the $1 trillion relief to the American people because of COVID. So sometimes they do this, and you know we do it in Canada too, is to is to try to we'll call it I won't call it high, but we'll call it include something that's not 100% related to the main part of a bill, just to get it done, maybe without that much uh, scrutiny, uh, maybe just for convenience sake. But um, Mr. Biden campaigned on raising the minimum wage. And uh, so he's, at this point anyway, including it in with the larger bill of relief. So how much is the minimum, the federal minimum wage in the United States? So there's minimum wages like we have in Canada, each province has its own minimum wage. Um, in the United States, the same thing, but the federal government sets a floor of a minimum wage, uh, which applies to all federal uh, employees, um, and which applies to uh, as a as a as a um, we'll call it as a bottom for all of Americans in general. So, how much is it? The American federal minimum wage is seven dollars and twenty five cents an hour. There are twenty one states in the United States, twenty one out of fifty for whom that is their own minimum wage. Most of these states are, we'll call them Republican voting. 
But um, just to give you some idea uh, how much $7.25 comes out to, it comes out to roughly um, $300 a week for a 40-hour week, uh, which comes out to $15,600 a year if you work 40 hours a week for 52 weeks um, at $7.25 an hour. So, um, uh, the, uh, you know, to, to, to live any sort of lifestyle on $15,600 a year is impossible. Obviously, there are some deductions that are made from that amount. But, uh, you know, even if there weren't any, this would be an unlivable wage. Um, this minimum wage has not been raised since 2009, meaning that you're talking now about 12 years. Despite all the inflation that has occurred, 12 years that the minimum wage in the U.S. has not been raised. If the, if the wage were to be indexed to inflation starting in 2009, the minimum wage would be over $20 an hour today. Um, but clearly, uh, you know, even if you count rent at, say, $700 a month, which is cheap enough, that comes to $8,400 a year. How are you, how can anyone support themselves living by themselves at that wage? It's impossible. Now, there is an exception to this minimum wage in the United States, and that is for workers making tips. We have that same exception, by the way, in Quebec too. So working, workers making tips are allowed to be paid less money. Um, now, how much less? The wage for workers making tips was set in 1991, the minimum wage. Guess how much it is? You're not gonna, you're not gonna know, because I'm gonna tell you. It's $2.13 an hour. So uh, there are now in the U.S. 1.3 million people who are working at a base rate of $2.13 an hour because they make tips. Now, obviously, you know, you can, depending on what you're doing, you can make a lot of tips, uh, you know, in a high turnover, expensive kind of restaurant or in entertainment. But for most people, um, the tips don't come close to making up for the uh, so-called lost wages. Um, uh, uh, in, uh, of course, today's uh, COVID times with the slowing down of businesses and restaurants, people who make tips, of course, are earning even less money than they were before. Um, in actual dollars, the minimum wage, not, not the tip wage, but the minimum wage is in buying power less today than it was 50 years ago. So that tells you how the section of the population who are earning minimum wage or close to minimum wage, how much they have dropped in earnings compared to other people who are, whose wages have kept pace with inflation. Um, and that is the reason for wanting to raise this minimum wage uh, as a kind of a catch-up and to provide uh, workers 
with low incomes with at least some sort of livable wage. Um, now, there have been some states have raised the minimum wage way past 7.25 an hour. So for example, in um, Washington and Massachusetts, it's $13 an hour. And in California, it's $14 an hour for companies with more than 26 employees. So, um, you know, those are wages that are, you know, closer to what it would take to provide a minimum standard of living, but they're still not all that high. Some companies like Costco or Target or Amazon, their starting wages are $15 an hour. So they've sort of met the uh, recommended minimum and, um, you know, especially Costco is a company known for treating its employees well and uh, for providing a, a living wage. Now, the question is, if you raise the minimum wage, what effect would that have on employment? Would that tend to make companies lay staff off because they can't afford the wages? Would that lead to companies looking for ways to mechanize their operations so that machines do the jobs that people were doing before. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a kind of a mixed bag. Um, but overall, studies have shown that uh, raising the minimum wage would help the economy and not hurt it. Uh, for one thing, it would provide more buying power to people who are making this wage. And therefore, these people, poor people, tend to spend all of their income. So all this extra income would be spent and thus generating more economic activity and thus generating more jobs. Um, that's one thing. The second thing is that now people are working two to three jobs. Obviously, at minimum wage, you can't manage on one job. But some people are working one and a half jobs in order to just try to provide for their families. If they were making uh, the minimum, the new minimum wage of $15 an hour, uh, they wouldn't have to take two jobs or one and three quarters jobs or, or three jobs among two people. Uh, they would just have a job each and that would leave an extra job for someone else to do. So there isn't a kind of a, uh, an absolute uh, necessity in that raising minimum wage would cause more unemployment. Um, in, any, in any case, uh, except for this COVID situation, uh, em employment in the United States was practically at rock bottom before the COVID uh, started. It was around 4%, which is pretty well rock bottom. So, um, you know, before COVID, there was no employment crisis that would, you, you know, lead people to be afraid to raise um, uh, minimum wages. Um, so that's kind of what some of the studies are showing. And raising the minimum wage, of course, would also raise wages for people who are earning above the minimum wage so that they uh, obviously don't fall below it. So it would raise the floor of all lower paid workers. And the United States, as you probably know, has the largest gap pretty well in the Western world of um, wealth gap between the people who were at the bottom, say 20% of the uh, population in earnings and the top 20%. Uh, 
their their gap is uh, pretty well the highest, their second highest in the whole um, developed world. So raising the bottom wages would just tend to close the gap a little bit between the poorer people and everyone else. Um, right now in the US, 21% of workers are making less than $15 an hour. That's 32 million people. So clearly that's the bottom fifth of the population who would benefit from a rise in the middle in the, um, in the minimum wage. But what about the argument that says, well, you know, that teenagers who live at home often work for the minimum wage, like working in uh, fast food restaurants, uh, working in the service industry, uh, they don't need to pay rent. They don't need to pay food. Uh, you know, basically, it's all spending money for them. And therefore, uh, why should teenagers be paid, uh, you know, so much that they become kind of, uh, we'll call it, uh, what, uh, not wealthy, but, you know, they'll have all this free spending money. Um and, you know, that argument is sometimes brought up by people who don't want to raise the minimum wage. But the facts are that only 10% uh, of workers making minimum wage are teenagers. 90% are not. Uh, most of the people are women making minimum wage are women between the ages of 25 and 54. And more than half of these people work full time. So I think this is very important to understand. And almost 30% of them have children. So what it means is that these people are really breadwinners for their families. Um, and it's not as if people say, well, I have nothing to do, so I don't mind working 10 hours a week, you know, taking tickets at the movies or, um, you know, uh, excuse me one second. Sorry, excuse me, sorry. I thought I heard somebody banging. So um, the argument against raising the minimum wage is that people really don't need it because uh, very often these are people who work part-time anyway just to sort of fill in their time or they're teenagers who don't need the extra money. But the facts show differently. The facts show, as I said, that um, most people working minimum wage are women between 25 and 54. Most work full-time, so a full-time worker at minimum wage is not working for the fun of it. They're working to make money, and um, many of them have children to support, and many of them, uh, in fact, are in, you know, single-parent families. Not, not all of them, obviously, but many are, are trying to support uh, their, their families uh, just on one wage. Um, what about the idea that... Um, in different places, costs are different, so that a minimum wage in one place will buy a lot more than a minimum wage in another place. And that's, of course, very true. So here's, a, here's a, 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 some idea of how that all works out. Um, it's been calculated that to make the minimum amount of money that you need for a modest standard of living, which means to cover all your expenses your basic expenses, rent, utilities, um, food, uh, 
for a single person uh, would be about $31,000 a year or $15 an hour. That's about, you know, just to make the bare minimum base, that's what it would cost. Now, in some cities, like New York City, for example, the standard that you would need wouldn't be $15 an hour, it would be $29 an hour. In Miami, $21 an hour, and in LA and Washington, D.C., $24 an hour. So in these high-cost cities where rent is high, and sometimes other, other uh, costs are high, like food is higher, higher cost in, in some cities than others, um, you know, uh, you need a lot more than $15 an hour just to make the bare minimum. So um, that's uh, the reason why raising the minimum wage is something that would sort of, a rising tide, uh, you know, lifts all boats. And not only would it assure uh, sort of a basic minimum for many people, but it would stimulate economic activity because more money would be flowing through the economy. Now, some people, of course, would be hurt because they, their margins are so thin. Uh, maybe, for example, restaurants might be an example of this. Um, some, some grocery stores, but probably not that many, uh, might have difficulties to um, provide that amount of money and keep on going. So uh, there could be there could be a plan to help this, this sort of industry out. Although, um, uh, you know, in business, sometimes nature takes its course. And if somebody is making so, so little profit as to need to um, make it by uh, so-called exploiting uh, their workers, then maybe this business doesn't deserve to be in business altogether. I mean, after all, uh, the argument was that um, you know the plantations couldn't exist without free labor in the states uh, during slavery time, and uh, clearly the end of slavery came, and whatever happened happened. So uh, you know sometimes that's what happens in the economy. Uh, there's always winners and losers with any with every change. So who makes this sort of minimum wage? You know, uh, substitute teachers today in the U.S. make make minimum wage. Uh, nursing assistants, health aides, grocery store workers, cleaners, janitors, restaurant workers, all of this type of thing. Um, uh, now, the plan of Mr. Biden is not to raise the minimum wage from whatever it is now, $7.25 to $15 immediately, but to spread it out over a number of years. And research shows that businesses are able to adapt if the change is spread out in time and they know in advance, um, you know, when it's going to change. Um, so that there's no loss of employment at all if the wages are raised gradually. Uh, and they've got proof of that uh, going back to 1968. Now, besides the fact that raising the minimum wage would put more money into people's pockets who are on the low end of the scale, would have a lot other, of other benefits also. One of the benefits would be healthier families so that they, people could afford to buy better quality food. 
Another would be uh, less tensions in families because uh, couples often fight over money when there isn't enough. And if there is enough, you know, that would lead to less marital, marital tensions, maybe less divorces, less teenage pregnancies because, uh, you know, a teen would say, look, I have to escape this, uh, this, this miserable household I'm living in and maybe, uh, you know, go, uh, go find a mate somehow prematurely. It would also lead to less welfare payments because um, one third of the people who are today receiving public assistance in the U.S. work for minimum wage. And that means that they get, you know, not just payments, but food stamps and Medicaid, etc. So uh, by raising the minimum wage on the one hand, you would be saving the state's uh, outgoing payments on the other hand. And of course, the minimum wage is taxable to, you know, for for, 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 for some small bits of it if, if it's added on to other income. So it, it seems as if uh, it's pretty well established that raising the minimum wage would do a good job to help the economy in general and help the poorer people in particular. And yet, of course, there's always going to be resistance to that, especially, especially among Republicans who claim they represent small business owners, but, you know, who represent more sometimes the, uh, you know, uh, sometimes larger companies. But um, the larger companies, the ones that I mentioned before, and many others have written to the government asking, asking the government to raise minimum wage um, because in a certain way, larger companies would benefit from that. They have the resources to pay the wages. They could drive out of business smaller competitors who, who, who are on the borderline sort of, uh, and that's a, a possibility as well. Um, sometimes, sometimes in the past, they've made exceptions for uh, farm workers where uh, farm workers uh, these days and before too are often paid by the volume that they pick and not by the hour that they work. And sometimes those uh, hours don't add up to um, making the minimum wage. Uh, and, but laws have been passed to make sure that um, farm workers have to earn at least a minimum wage, even if they're paid by the, uh, by the volume or weight of, of, you know, of what they're picking. Uh, and certainly, um, you know, the, the farming industry in the U.S. today is so mechanized and so large that uh, these companies who uh, employ thousands and hundreds of workers can certainly afford to pay um, their farm workers a, a reasonable wage. And especially nowadays that farm workers are harder to find because of immigration restrictions, um, they want to keep their workers. And if the workers feel they can't make a go of it, they just won't show up to pick the next season. And so it's in everyone's interest to pay a reasonable enough wage to attract the workers to come back. So I've given you the information about the U.S. What about Canada? How is, how, what's our minimum wage? How does our minimum wage go? And um, it's province by province, as I said. Uh, but in contrast to the U.S., our lowest, lowest minimum wage uh, is today in Saskatchewan, which is $11.45 an hour. The second lowest is New Brunswick with $11.70 an hour. 
The highest are Alberta at $15 an hour and BC at $14.60 an hour. Um, Quebec is at $13.10 an hour, going up to $13.50 an hour by May 1st. Now, um, you have to also remember that in Canada, uh, many expenses uh, which uh, in the United States have to be paid for by the individual, especially uh, medical expenses uh, and other, <laughs> other expenses related to that, are paid for in Canada, are free in Canada. And so, therefore, our, our minimum wage, um, our minimum wage uh, structure is quite a bit uh, fairer than the American one. And um, the gap in Canada between the poorest uh, 20% and the wealthiest 20% is much less than that in the United States. So, uh, you know, it remains to be seen if this will get passed because there is a, are at least one or two senators in the US, uh, the senator from West Virginia, especially and one from Arizona who say they don't want the minimum wage raise to be put in the package with the COVID relief bill. Uh, they want it separated. So if, um, if they vote against the COVID relief bill because of this, the whole bill can go into the garbage. So um, there has to be negotiate, are negotiations over this issue. If enough Republicans, of course, support it, then you know, those two senators' votes for the Democrats aren't needed. But this is also an issue that will be uh, that has to be looked at before uh, coming up for a vote. Uh, needless to say, uh, the Biden administration will not present a bill that they know won't win. So all of the discussions have to handle have to be handled beforehand. So this is the end of my discussion about the uh, rise in the minimum wage. Let me just check my watch. Here we are. Um, any quick questions about that before we move on? We're changing subject completely. Hi, Mr. Dwaskin. I see one question by an anonymous attendee. It says, do prices go up when the minimum go, uh, wage goes up? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, obviously, wages are an input of cost to whoever is uh, selling a product. In some places, the input is quite high. In some places, it's negligible. Um, obviously, for example, uh, in a um, restaurant uh, or in a small store, uh, the wages of the employees are a large input. If you've got a hugely mechanized factory, uh, then, then it's a tiny input. So it depends on the input, and that would affect the cost of the of the person running the business. Now, you know, uh, the wage costs are only one part of the decision to raise prices because you have to look at what your competitors are doing uh, and knowing what you can sell things for. But in general, it should account for a small rise in prices, everything else being equal. Remember, of course, that the inflation rate in the Canada and the US are practically at zero. So uh, although people are talking these days about inflation picking up, inflation is still really, really low. And by really low, I mean under 2% a year. For those of us 
you know, and I assume that's all of us listening to, to, to me, including my own self, we can remember uh, inflation at 9 and 10% a year way back in the 80s. And um, at 2% a year is practically negligible. So there's plenty of room in the economy for inflation to, um, to expand a little bit. And Janice Yellen, the, um, the newly appointed, uh, we'll call her Minister of Finance of the US, has said as much and will say that uh, this week in her address. So yes, it's true that costs will go up, but um, you know, assuming it all goes up equally, then there should not be a big effect on the economy, but there are individual, individual companies, stores and restaurants that will be affected by it. But it, it, if it affects them so much that they would fail, it means they're already on the border of failure. Uh, and uh, this just puts them, or puts them over the edge. Um, and if it's done, as I said, in, in, in stages rather than all in one shot, uh, clearly to go from $7.25 an hour to $15 an hour would be quite a shock. But the, the government foresees this happening up until 2025. So it's quite a long time for, you know, for businesses to absorb these, these increases. And I said there's offsetting benefits because people who make more money spend more money. And uh, so, you know, whatever goes around comes around. And, um, you know, in the end, it should not be that drastic an action, especially, as I said, because they haven't gone up since 2009. So that means that minimum wages have gone down and wages of everybody earning low incomes have gone down relative to the cost of living. Anyone else? I don't see any more questions. Okay, what, okay thank you. Thank you, Angel. What, what I wanted to do now, um, you know, which I haven't done in a, in a bit of time, was to um, just kind of scratch, scratch over the, the situation regarding COVID um, in, uh, in some detail. And, and the reason for this is really that the U.S. has hit a half a million deaths yesterday. And uh, some of you might have seen uh, Mr. Biden, President Biden's speech in memory of these people who died, which is quite a moving speech, a very personal speech. And if we look one year back in February of 2020, when the very, very first deaths were being reported, there wasn't anybody, including the experts, including uh, Dr. Fauci, who could have predicted that in a year's time, one half of a million Americans would die. Um, and uh, the number half a million is exaggerated to the bottom and not to the top. In other words, it understates the real number. It doesn't overstate it as, as the president, uh, ex-president Trump had suggested. And the reason for that is that at the very beginning, the first couple of months when COVID was unfamiliar, um, hospitals were recording deaths for other reasons and not COVID. And um, they might've been recorded as pneumonia or they might've been recorded as heart failure. And really, in fact, it was, it was COVID. So not only in the US and Canada, but many other places underreported the results at the beginning. Uh, and some of them required a positive COVID test in order to 
um, have the patient recorded as having died from COVID and they had no time to do the COVID test. So they weren't recorded in that way. One way to look at this for sure is to measure excess deaths. In other words, you take what's the normal amount of deaths in a year and then look at the amount of deaths uh, you know, in the year of COVID and add all the COVID deaths uh, to the normal deaths and you would see that there's still an extra amount of unexplainable un deaths on top of the COVID deaths to, um, to, to, you know, you know, to make up the totals. And you know, these sort of unexplained deaths are, are really COVID deaths. And uh, the month of January, this past January, just last month, was the largest amount of deaths uh, in the US. They had 100,000 deaths in January alone and 500,000 total. So just think in one year or 12 months, um, you know, just one month accounted for a fifth of all the deaths. So January was really a, an extremely deadly month in the US and um, in many, many parts of the world, but not all. And uh, finally, by now, the rates have, are going down quite a bit. The rates of deaths are going down and the rates in cases are going down. Um, in fact, in fact, uh, the uh, decreases in, uh, the, in uh, the US are down 62% in the last 28 days. In Canada, down 35% in the last 28 days. In Great Britain, down 70%, and in Israel, down 55%. Uh, in some places in uh, the world, in Latin America, Colombia is down 71, Bolivia 60, and Mexico 60. And Portugal 86, and South Africa 84. So in these countries, and in most of the world, not all, but most of the world, the rates of COVID are going down quite quickly in the last month. Um, some countries, however, are up. There's 23, only 23 countries uh, out of 200 where the rates are going up, including Bulgaria, Greece, Jamaica, Jordan, and in the Palestinian territory. Uh, Jamaica is up 210% in the last month. Uh, Jordan 150, Bulgaria 130, etc. So uh, those are kind of the trends in the world. So the, most of the trends are doing well uh, in cases, and some of them are not. Now, the, of course, you have to ask yourself why is the why is the cases going down? And we don't really have, believe it or not, there's no real answer to it. Considering that vaccinations have only started to take place in the last uh, month, we'll say, it's too soon for the drop in the rate of COVID to be attributed to um, the increase in vaccinations uh, alone. Because only Israel has vaccinated half of its people and every other country are way under half. The US is now at 13%. Canada is at the two point, uh, two point something percent. Um, uh, no, uh, 3.8%, uh, well, well, yeah, let's call it somewhere around 2%. Uh, and so vaccinations, and you know, remember they take time for it to become effective. So vaccinations are not the explanation. 
there uh, have to be other explanations why, why it is. And the explanations could range from, uh, let's face it, a certain number of people have already caught COVID, and therefore these people are now immune from uh, getting it again. So it's the, well, it's the beginning, we'll call it a, what's called herd immunity. In other words, if everyone has had the disease already, there's no place for the disease to catch on. So that's part of it. It could be uh, increasing wearing of masks. It could be the lockdowns and social isolation of people. It also could be a natural decline, an unexplained natural decline in the disease. In other words, we don't really know how this thing works, but it may sort of have used up all its energy in some ways and, and is now in decline just because that's the nature of the virus itself. So, um, you know, all these explanations are good ones. And it's not just the rate of infection that's gone down, but much more importantly is the rate of hospitalizations. In other words, the rate of severe disease has gone down as well. So this is the proof of declining cases. Um, many times people will say, and they're right, that it's no use looking at the number of cases because the number of cases depends on the number of tests done. In some parts of the world, there's lots of testing. In other parts, there's no testing. And this is very true. But the number of hospitalizations is a much better way to test where things are going because you know, testing or no testing, if you're sick, you're gonna end up in the hospital. And the rate of hospitalizations is now down to just about half of what it was at its peak. So definitely that means that the number of cases is going down, probably faster than the rate of hospitalizations is going down. So all of these are, all of these are very good, uh, good indications. Um, so far, according to the numbers, um, the numbers uh, in the US, about uh, the official numbers are that somewhere around eight and a half percent of all Americans have got COVID. That's for sure an underrepresentation because people who were had no symptoms never reported anything. So and they got it. So you know the the minimum, the bare baseline minimum is eight and a half percent. The real number could be anywhere from two times to five times that number. Nobody really knows, but that just gives you an idea. Um, in Quebec, the real the number is three and a half percent of had COVID. In Ontario, it's two two point two percent. Now uh, the U.S. is averaging twenty people per hundred thousand of new cases in the last week. Um, in uh, in uh, Canada, it's nine cases per 100,000. Uh, I mentioned that the US has had uh, half a million deaths reported. Canada has had 21,700, which if you adjust it for the US population would come to about 150,000. So that means that our death, our death total or death rate is more than three times less the US rate for the same amount of people. Uh, Quebec, unfortunately, has had 10,000 out of those 21,000 deaths, uh, which would come out to 126 deaths total per 100,000 population. 
The United States total in general is 150 per 100,000. So we're not that far behind in Quebec, but we got hit at the beginning with a huge wave of nursing home deaths. And the rest of Canada didn't get hit with that wave. And um, therefore, uh, once that wave was over, uh, uh, Quebec and the rest of Canada has certainly under, thankfully, underperformed uh, the American totals. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully this number, and this number is decreasing on a daily basis. So, um, you know, uh, it's tragic, as Mr. Biden said, for everyone who's lost somebody. And we have to remember that it's not, not just the people who died and all their friends and relatives who, who, who have suffered, but people who recovered from COVID, many, many, many of them are suffering long-term effects. Um, I spoke to someone yesterday who lost their sense of smell and they were, they were uh, barbecuing an orange on a barbecue um, because they read somewhere that if you barbecue an orange until it's black and then you scoop out the inside and you mix it with um, brown sugar, that this would help to bring back, um, you know, the sense of smell or taste. So uh, there certainly are a lot of people who have these long-term effects, you know, brain fog, uh, confusion, tiredness, achiness, uh, six months after they've recovered. So it is a very serious uh, long-term disease for some people. Of course, the issue of variance is un unknown where these variants can go. And um, we know one thing that the variants will not stop that will not stop coming. That the nature of um, the nature of uh, genetic uh, diversification is that in in um, in a smaller and simpler life forms, there is more variation. And variation happens all the time. And so, you know, they've discovered many different variants already, not just three kinds, but many, many different kinds. Most of them share uh, elements in common. Uh, the fear is that something might come from out of the blue that is so different from the ones that exist now that the vaccines won't work on them. Already it's been shown that the AstraZeneca vaccine doesn't work very well on the South African uh, variant, but that the uh, other vaccines do work on the British variant. And these variants, the ones that they've come up and that they've discovered, uh, seem to be much more infectious, 30 to 40 percent more infectious than the first uh, varieties that appeared uh, back in, uh, we'll call it December uh, of 2020, 2019, which is sort of the beginning of the, uh, of the time. Um, uh, so it's an unknown. In a certain sense, you know, there's a race between the um, vaccinations and the new variants coming on. So if, if uh, the vaccinations do work even partially against the new variants and enough people are vaccinated, uh, the variants won't have any real effect. If, on the other hand, the variants 
multiply faster than the amount of people getting the vaccines, uh, we could be back into the sort of uh, bad times with COVID that we were in uh, at the end of last year and the beginning of this year. So just to, again, uh, let's say, remind people that although this plague started in, we'll call it January, but let's call it really February 2020, the worst of it really started to occur in November. So November, December of last year and January this year were the three worst months all around the world for this plague to have happened. And you might remember the words of uh, former President Trump, who in February said, well, it'll all be over by springtime, because he was assuming that just like the flu comes in the winter and disappears in the summer, that he thought COVID would be the same thing, of course, with no evidence. And indeed, the surprise was that um, the summer did quieten down quite a bit, but it picked up with a vengeance uh, uh, again once, um, once November started, and uh, those were the worst three months. So, uh, you know, the biggest political discussion is about vaccinations, and let's have a look about that. Let's have a look at that for a minute. Uh, 208 million doses have been administered in the world so far. That's quite a lot of doses, but there's seven and a half billion people in the world, so it goes, you know, much, far, much less than 10% of the world has been vaccinated. Israel, as we know, uh, has vaccinated half of its people, um, but they've given out doses to equal to 83% of the population of the country. But uh, in fact, uh, half of the people have had one dose and another 34% have had both doses. So Israel by far and away has the championship in uh, vaccinations. Um, United Arab Emirates, it's its newfound best friend, is second with 26% uh, of the population having been vaccinated. Um, uh, the uh, United States is on average at 13% with one shot and 6% with two shots. And Canada is not broken down, but the total... Canada has given 1.4 million shots. So 1.4 million is equal to about 4% of the total population. But, um, you know, it's, it's far down the list, and I mean far down the list of countries uh, that have given out shots. The U.S. Is the, has given out uh, 63 million shots total, um, and China has given out 40 million shots total. So those are the two top countries in number of shots given. Um, uh, that's a, a kind of a, and, and we have to say that whether you're talking about the economic uh, life of the world, the educational life of the world, the social life of the world, um, obviously the uh, health life of the world, Every single aspect of our existence has been affected by COVID uh, by far and away in this last year. And uh, there's nothing that has happened pretty well of importance in the world 
um, in, in, a, in a big general sense that doesn't have anything to do with COVID. You know, whether, you know, whatever aspect of human life we're talking about, uh, whether it's cultural, whether it's um, social, whether it's educational, whether it's financial, uh, COVID is really the prime mover of all of these aspects of our lives and um, will be until the uh, disease is brought under control, which it looks like is happening. Uh, and I would say it's happening at an increasing rate. So, you know, it could well be that in five years time, people will look back at this time uh, like we look back at the ice storm and say, remember how horrible it was for, you know, uh, 1998 for a week or two uh, where our whole lives were suspended completely. Well, this is much more serious than the ice storm, but hopefully we'll be able to look in the rearview mirror and look at it in that way. It's very likely, however, that the emergence of variants uh, will continue so that um, we will need a kind of an annual booster shot or an annual shot just the way the, way the flu uh, influenza um, uh, changes so much from one year to the next that we need an annual flu shot. Uh, it's quite likely that we will need an annual COVID shot to cover whatever variants appeared in the last year. And this will be an ongoing um, part of our uh, existence. Now, we also have read and heard about a lot of people who refuse to take uh, a vaccine. And these vaccine resistors are uh, amounting to quite a bit of worry uh, for public health directors in uh, countries around the world. And the reasons for refusing the vaccines could be many. Could be they don't believe it works. Some few people don't believe there's such a thing as COVID altogether. Some people feel that they just don't trust doctors, no matter what the doctors say. Um, some people feel that the, the, the vaccine might be harmful in some way. It might be introducing kind of uh, artificial genes into our bodies. Uh, it might have um, effects on the reproductive system. Uh, all kinds of sort of theories are emerging out of nothing in the internet. And you know, the internet can spread false news faster than it spreads true news. Uh, nevertheless, there is a considerable portion of people who are resisting this vaccine. Um, and unfortunately, it's the poorer people, the people who belong to minorities in the US who are the most hesitant and resistant to take the vaccine because they somehow uh, don't trust um, authority altogether. And certainly in the case of blacks in the United States and indigenous people in Canada, um, the health authorities kind of misused these people to do experimentation on them to, uh, to, uh, to take advantage of their naivete, to do testing. Uh, in some cases, it led to um, unwanted sterilizations. Uh, you know, in the US, there's this famous uh, uh, experiment on blacks in Alabama for the syphilis uh, vaccines and, and stuff like that. So there are pockets of resistance for sort of historical reasons. 
Um, and uh, there's just some people who quote think that nature will take care, uh, you know, of itself, and that natural selection is the best way to go. So lots of different reasons for resisting these vaccines, uh, certainly spread by uh, the internet. Um, even in Israel, the most vaccinated country, there is a strong movement to resist these vaccines, sometimes led by ultra-Orthodox rabbis who, who, who promote all kinds of uh, fantasies, uh, such as that the vaccines aren't kosher, they're not made with kosher ingredients, uh, that God uh, is the one who decides on people's fates and, you know, we shouldn't put people's fates um, in, in the hands of other people and all these sort of arguments. Um, if there is a pocket of unvaccinated people, it doesn't much matter so long as this pocket is small. The moment this pocket gets big, that's when problems start because the vaccine, not, not the vaccine, but the virus can replicate itself because it has new hosts to, to, to go into. Uh, if everyone is vaccinated and the virus can't find the host to go into, it won't replicate and make new variants. But if there is a pocket of hosts that are there, it can uh, make new variants. And these variants can then spread to even the vaccinated population as a whole and cause damage. So it's really important to try to vaccinate as many people as possible. Uh, we have statistics, for example, on measles, which show that, um, you know, 95% of the population has to be vaccinated in order that measles doesn't replicate because it's the, it's the, most, um, uh, the most catchy uh, disease that there is that we know about. Uh, you could catch measles by just being in the same room as someone who's been there but has gone you know, for a while. So that's how catchy it is. And um, the only way to, to stop that is to vaccinate almost everybody. So, so you know, with COVID, it, 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 the parallel is there. And um, to overcome resistance to vaccination will take jobs of the governments to explain, and also members of the different communities to explain in their own way, in their own language, with their own culture, how important vaccination is. But certainly uh, when you combine the numbers of vaccinated people with the numbers of people who have already got COVID and you add those two together, uh, and these numbers are increasing day by day, this means that there's less hosts to, to welcome the COVID vaccine and therefore the incidence of the disease should continue to drop and draw pretty quickly, um, you know, because this is a multiplier effect. So, uh, you know, that's just a kind of a, a kind of a, uh, we'll call it an overview of, um, uh, of COVID at present. And I want to uh, just ask people who have missed or didn't see the president's um, memorial to the half a million people who passed away, I think it's worth watching because it's an example of oratory, an example of presidential, um, uh, we'll call it uh, presidential, what? Um, uh, speech, which is there to act in a nonpartisan way 
to achieve a kind of a national memorial. And if you could just imagine, if the, for those of you who saw it, if you can just imagine President Trump saying the same thing, you would say, no, 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 it's impossible. He could never, never have made a speech like that because um, it wasn't, you know, you know, it wasn't about him. It was about trying to comfort the American people who've lost family, um, who've lost uh, friends to the disease and to tell them that there is hope ahead. And of course, you know, President Trump was never interested in comforting anyone, you know, except himself. Uh, speaking of which, uh, maybe just to end off, you might have heard that the uh, Supreme Court in the U.S. have just said that it's okay to go after his, his financial records, that he doesn't have immunity once he's not president, and let, let the chips fall where they may. So we may be reading some interesting details, although um, the details uh, the Supreme Court said can be kept uh, confidential. So it may be that it won't be uh, out in public, but my guess is somehow or other, these, um, these documents will get leaked at some point or other. And uh, apparently um, the, um, the uh, uh, Trump uh, accountants firms are saying that they have, quote, millions, not, not thousands, millions of pages of documents to hand over. So, you know, in legal cases, sometimes if you can't beat them, join them, you know that idea? Uh, you want some information here, I'll give you so much information, I'll give you boxes full, I'll give you rooms full of information that you'll never have time to go through all of this stuff. And so, in other words, you're killing, 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 you, killing the opposition with kindness. And it's a legal tactic, which is well known, um, and um, uh, which it seems like Trump's uh, people are going to do. However, however, the opposite side says, fine, you know, well, if we have to hire 100 accountants, we'll hire 100 accounts. If we have to hire 1,000 accounts, we'll hire 1,000 people to go through all these pages and find the good stuff that's buried and hidden in all of these documents. So, uh, you know, let's, uh, you know, for those of you who are interested in this little story, now the best is yet to come. So I'm going to stop now. Um, and um, I just want to mention one other thing before we go, before we go to questions. I, I have to mention it because I would call it the event of the week, which was the Mars landing. And just imagine the difficulty. Forget this. Imagine that in 1950, in many of our lifetimes, after the Second World War was over, that you would tell people, you know, that in X number of time, we are going to actually be able to land a camera on a robot on Mars. Think of it, you know, with all the, with all the sort of um, advancement uh, that was up until 1950, it was pre-computers. It was pre-spacecraft uh, of any kind. And imagine telling someone like, you know, when we were kids, oh, you know, one day we're gonna land a, a thing on Mars and that it would be easier to land a vehicle on Mars with a camera than to cure a common disease. Imagine people would say, no, that doesn't seem possible. And yet, you know, you know, the engineers managed to uh, land a spacecraft on Mars 
and haven't managed to control a disease up, up to this point, which has killed half a million people. And it's, uh, um, you know, that's, it's quite shocking and quite interesting. But we're looking forward to getting the information from Mars. And the reason they landed it in the place they landed it, in case you didn't know this, is that from uh, satellite pictures, they saw that for sure there was once water in the place that they landed on Mars. They could see a kind of a river delta. They could see kind of dried up lakes. And they know for sure that the patterns that are made in the rock were made by uh, water flowing. And of course, there's no water anymore. But what they want to do is to take a look at the soil and see, you know, are there signs of former life that were in that water um, uh, to kind of prove maybe that there was once life on Mars. And that's the reason they picked that area. So now I'm going to stop. And, um, you know, if you've got some questions, uh, go right ahead. And uh, also, if you've got suggestions for future topics, let me know. And we'll see where we go from there. Hello, Mr. Dwaskin. So Deborah is asking, if you had your choice of vaccine, which one would you choose? Well, um, good question. Uh, right now, as we all know, there's only two vaccines that have been uh, approved for use in Canada and the US. That's the Pfizer and Moderna ones. There are many more that are coming. Um, the Pfizer one is the one that's been studied the most because that's the one that's been give, given in Israel. And uh, so I would pick the Pfizer one, which, uh, which I have to, uh, uh, to admit to you that I've had it. I've had both shots already uh, in Florida and um, without any effects whatsoever. Um, there are, the AstraZeneca one has been approved in, in um, Great Britain. It's made there and in Europe. Uh, the uh, Johnson & Johnson one is, seems to be, um, the submission for approval has been, will be given in next week in the US, so that one may be approved. Um, in Russia, the one that they're using has already been shown to be effective, and that's being now exported to many countries around the world, including to the Palestinian uh, Authority. Um, the Chinese are using the ones that they have uh, developed. So there's many different sort of, uh, you know, vaccines that are being uh, approved. And the more that get approved, the better. Because as variants come and go, it will be shown that some vaccines are better against some variants. And then we can all go to that one. And the manufacturing process is something like... Um, uh, ex will grow exponentially. So in other words, it starts off slowly, and I can tell you, and I am sure of this, that there will be more vaccines available than there are people to take the vaccines at some point. So that's, that's how many uh, are coming. Thankfully, you know, we've read that Canada is receiving, finally, uh, some decent numbers of vac vaccines uh, by the end of the month and uh, then the vaccination can get rolling uh, uh, in, you know, uh, in Canada as well. Uh, but certainly that is the, um, that is the uh, solution to this issue. I want to point out one interesting thing though, uh, and uh, I remember reading Dr. Fauci's uh, 
comments to say that uh, social distancing is really the answer and wearing masks is really the answer, uh, you know, until everyone is vaccinated, which is an, obviously an interesting, I mean, an important idea. But if you look at the rates of COVID in two contrasting states in the U.S., one Florida and one California, uh, Florida never closed down. Florida has been open from the get-go. I mean, maybe there was a two-week close down, lockdown, and then everything is open as normal. Movie theaters, bowling alleys, beauty shops, restaurants for indoor dining. Um, the only thing that's not open are, you know, mass uh, concerts and things like that. The rate of COVID is the same. And in some weeks, it was less than California, where everything was closed down. So how to explain that? I can't explain it. I don't know. But it, uh, it bears uh, thinking about. Uh, any, any other questions? I have a question for you, Mr. Dwoskin. Sure. Um, I don't know if you heard that uh, they found a case of H5N8 avian bird flu in Russia. And yes, I did. I did. I did hear about that. Yeah. Okay. So my question to you is, uh, with COVID becoming a major pandemic, do you think it somehow imbalances or corrupts something in the system for other viruses and bacteria to show up? Uh, in other words, is there a relation between the appearance of one virus and the appearance of a different virus? That's the that's sort of the question. Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, it's uh, it it's it's um, in a way the general public only gets to hear about the uh, we'll call them the publicity worth sort of diseases that come around. Scientists are tracking var variations of existing um, viruses uh, by the dozens all the time. Most of them don't make the news because they um, uh, either are not strongly dispersed or that they don't have a very uh, serious effect on people. But, uh, you know, things like avian flu uh, are sort of, we'll call them plagues that have been sort of uh, appearing and appearing and appearing all the time. And we had a bad one in Canada. I remember SARS-2, I think it was called. Um, and, uh, but, but, you know, thankfully these things um, are not spread as quickly or easily as COVID. And that, that's the, uh, you, you know, the COVID plague is something that was so serious because it spread easily on the one hand, and it was deadly on the other hand. And, um, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and sadly, it affects all ages and people, even though the vast majority of people who died are people who were over 65. But, you know, a six-year-old uh, has died of it as well. So, you know, that's why it's really something that has changed the life around the, uh, around the world, but especially in the Western world. Uh, you know, from A to Z. One of the questions that's kind of not yet really well looked into is the incidence of COVID in Africa and other uh, less um, developed places where they may have it and not record it. 
There's certainly, uh, I was reading an article in Africa about recording deaths. Deaths are not recorded in the vast majority of African countries. There's just no standard way to record them or no, no way at all to record them. If someone dies, their family just buries them and nobody knows and nobody tells and that's the end of it. There's no statewide registry. So for that reason, there's no way to know how many people are dying in Africa. There's no records that are kept, standardized records, um, you know, and except in a few countries like uh, South Africa uh, keeps them, Tunisia keeps them, um, Egypt, believe it or not, keeps them. Uh, and uh, pretty well, that's about it for, for really good records. Um, and therefore, we really don't know. We really, really don't know. Uh, the Prime Minister of Uganda said, uh, don't bother fighting COVID. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it's not something that Ugandans have to worry about. And so you've got, you, you know, you've got this denial and, and, and people are dying without even, you know, uh, the world knowing about it. So, th so this is really quite, uh, quite a big effect. Um, and because these countries are so poor, uh, they haven't been able to pay market prices for the uh, vaccines. And the UN is selling, is distributing these vaccines kind of by uh, COVAX, which is a um, United Nations funded vaccine purchasing organization. Um, uh, but obviously if you're a vaccine maker, you wanna make your vaccines and sell them first before you give them away for nothing. So, uh, you know, at this point, we're still at the situation where there's more demand than supply. But eventually that will reverse itself. And, and pretty well, the whole world will have access of some sort to the vaccine. Doesn't mean that the whole world will take them. Anyone else? I don't see any more questions, Mr. Dwaskin. I would just like to mention to everyone listening in through Zoom or the telephone that Mr. Dwaskin will continue his lectures through the whole month of March, just in oh. case people are wondering. Sure. So, you know, don't don't run out, you know, at the first sign of spring and uh, and uh, go wild, you know. Stay, in, stay indoors on Tuesday afternoons at 2 o'clock, and then you can go out. Yeah. So, <laughs> so thank you so much everybody for tuning in and listening i really appreciate it so so much and so does uh you know code saint luke uh and um angela thank you so much for uh hosting and for arranging and uh we'll see you all next week thank you for listening to the code saint luke podcast today we launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in march 2020 the idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation and the library into your homes using Zoom, telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the city of Cote St. Luke, visit CoteStLuke.org. Have a great day.